This is your coffee break. Hi, friends. I'm back again this week with a guest who I'm super excited to share with you. This is Vahan Zanoyan, and I feel like I messed up your last name, and I'm very sorry, but Vahan, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. I'm very excited to have you on the show today. You have a very uh, rich and interesting past, and I'm very excited that you get to share this with our listeners today because I think that a lot of people will connect to it. Can you tell us a little bit about your journey to becoming a writer? Wow. Um, <laughs> no pressure, I guess. The journey, the journey to becoming a writer starts with living first. Mm. I believe, first of all, that uh, we were not put on this earth to do just one thing, you know, to, to come, do something even extremely well, excel at it, and then just go away. I think man is a very multidimensional animal. Uh, and I think even if you come and do just one thing and go away, uh, you're missing something, regardless how well you do it, because life is too rich, too diversified. There's so much that one misses if just one does one thing, even 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 in excellence. So this is sometimes seems difficult to follow, but actually it's very easy because so much is out there. Writing was a passion for me very early on. Uh, when I was a teenager, I published some of my first short stories. But then for about 40 years, I didn't write. I mean, I wrote a lot professionally in terms of professional articles, speeches, presentations, and, and reports, but not literature. I'm kind of rushing through the story here because I don't want to bore your audience. But then about six or seven years ago, I made a single-minded executive decision. I said, okay, enough. And I retired from the professional life and devoted myself entirely to writing. So since then, I've published two volumes of poetry and three novels, and I'm working on my fourth novel now. But each of these writing experiences has actually come from something, from a living experience. That's why I said it starts with living. It doesn't have to be necessarily something you know very well, by the way. It has, to do, it has to be something that moves you. It has to be something that totally captures your imagination and takes you away. Uh, otherwise, it's very difficult to write. Uh, otherwise, it becomes a professional report. That you can right. write without being carried away, right? I mean, as a, if that's your job, and I did that for 30, 35 years, but if it's going to be literature, it's going to capture the reader, it has to first capture the writer. That's why I said it has to move you. So poetry, I think poetry is pretty straightforward because if something hasn't moved you, hasn't risen, uh, hasn't aroused some type of emotion in you in the first place, it's very hard to even put it in poetry form. It has to flow and it has to flow from both your mind, your heart, your being, and from some of your experiences that have meant something to you in your life or mean something to you today. Otherwise, poetry just doesn't come. And the novel, and what I love about fiction, is the storytelling part of it. We love telling stories. I think it's a, one of the original human distinctions from animals, if you want. Anyway, I, I come from a very different, I think, background than most of your other guests. I'm not sure. I've, I've listened to a few of the presentations. Your listeners maybe already guessed that from my accent. But I grew up in a very small village in Lebanon. Nobody has heard of. Then 
moved to Beirut. I studied there, then moved to the United States. I studied at University of Pennsylvania, then mm. moved to Washington, D.C. I was a consultant in the global energy business for some 30 years. And that's what took me all over the world, meeting all kinds of governments and companies and so on. In fact, that's the background of my third note, The Sacred Sands. But before that, uh, in, in one of my business trips in Dubai, I ran into a very young and absolutely gorgeous 16-year-old girl in the lobby of a hotel. She turned out to be a victim of sex trafficking. It took me about six months to gain her confidence and convince her to tell me her story. The reason it took me that long is because they're so scared, they frighten them, they threaten them, and they're not supposed to tell their story. Especially, in fact, those who are in that business like her, involuntarily, I think, like obliged or forced or coerced into that, that thing and have never accepted their fate, are watched very carefully because they're suspect mm-hmm. uh, from the point of view of their captors. Any case, um, this is something that turned into a major, major, major obsession for me. I, I just couldn't, I, I couldn't sleep for months. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it's, it's one thing to hear about this phenomenon on the news, to see it on the news, to read about it in the papers, and you say, oh, you know, that's really bad. It's an entirely different thing to look an actual victim in the eye and hear the story from her own mouth and see the anguish and the fear and and, and the surprise almost in, in her face. And, and all of a sudden, you realize that there's almost like a parallel world. You know, there's there's like... Here we are going through life, having a good time, having a bad day or a good day, doesn't matter. But but today, as we speak, as you and I are speaking now, Sarah, there's someone being kidnapped or abducted at this minute. Mm. I, I bet you it's happening. And all of a sudden, the realization that this is like that, that that world actually exists and it's gruesome. And, and it just, it's probably one of the worst crimes one can commit to an innocent teenage girl. Then, then you can't just leave it alone. Anyway, that that led to two novels, and the reason I again uh, wrote novels because I, at that time, I really wanted to raise a lot of international public awareness about this issue, and the one way to do it is to write fiction. I think. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? I'm, I'm so so. The novels you're referring to are called A Place Far Away, which was published in 2013, and then The Doves of Ohanavank which was published in yes. 2014. And I'm, I'm so interested in the connection here between you talk about an obsession that moved you, that was a very emotional experience. Can you tell me about the role of fiction in moving other people to awareness and maybe to action? That's a very good question, actually, because I could have written just an article, tried to have it published in a paper or something as an eyewitness or something, you know, it, it, probably that would have done some good also. It would, it would have attracted a certain audience. But I thought it, it, a fiction form would have, a, first of all, a much wider audience. It would have a deeper impact because I believe you can expose the truth better in, through a story than just listing of a fact. You know, a fact is a fact. It may or may not expose the true extent 
of the truth behind it, of what's really going on behind it in terms of the human, human part, in terms of the emotion, in terms of even the so what question. It, it doesn't answer the so what question if, if you just list the fact or describe a factual situation in its own way. Whereas in fiction, you have certain freedoms. It's, it's, it's a beautiful thing. First of all, you take, in, in this case, for example, in, in a place far away, I took the stories of four different girls and combined them into one character. That's the only real way, it's the only reason why I call it fiction. Otherwise, the, the character and the story as, as told in that novel didn't happen exactly as told. But every component of it has happened in real life to some girl or another. So in that sense, it's, it's, not, it's non-fiction. But the story as told, as I said, is, is fiction because of that composite character. It enriches the story without artificially embellishing it. It remains true to the, to the main factual base or undercurrent uh, on which the story is based. So I think fiction brings out a lot more than a professional article does. By the way, the, the, the young victim that I ran to came from a very tiny village in Armenia. This is a republic from the, of the former Soviet Union that gained its independence back in 1991 after the Soviet Union collapsed. And a lot of the syndromes that followed, including the increase in sex trafficking and so on, came as a consequence of the collapse of the Soviet Union and the removal of many of the social safeguards and social protections that the old system used to have. So it, it's a broader issue in, in some ways. It's a, when the old system collapsed, but nothing new had replaced it yet in terms mm -hmm. of structure, there was chaos. And in that chaos, all kinds of victims happened. So that's, that's the background to that one. I really appreciate you sharing that with us. That's such a burden to take on as a writer. And it's probably not taken on lightly. And I love that you used your calling as a writer to spur people to action. I'm curious, when, when you imagine people reading your books, what action do you imagine them moving toward when they're done reading? You know, I first, there are several things, several levels of that question. Number one, let me just say that I donate all the proceeds uh, of, of those books, plus actually The Sacred Sands, which is not about sex trafficking. That's, a, <laughs> that's an entirely different world, and we'll talk about that, I hope, in a second. But yes. I, I donate all of the proceeds after matching them 100% uh, by my own funds to several organizations that fight sex trafficking or protect victims uh, of sex trafficking, and sometimes also victims of domestic abuse. And every place I've been where I give talks about this, about the book and so on, I encourage people to do the same. And the funds going to some of those organizations that I, I support have quadrupled after the book has been published and people realize that that's where all the proceeds are going. This is, this is one aspect. The second aspect, I cooperated very closely with the US embassy in Armenia and with the Armenian government to start a campaign to help prevent such cases, because most of the cases of sex trafficking happen in poor villages, very innocent, unsuspecting young victims, and sometimes unsuspecting parents of the victims who buy the story that their daughter is going to have this fantastic job somewhere and on their all these false premises. 
So there was a big campaign. Of, they, they created a, a telephone hotline for help. They created a whole series of public service announcements, PSAs, that, pop, that was put on TV to warn potential victims that some, by the way, those books, um, the first two novels, which are about the sex trafficking story, are translated into Armenian and published in Armenia, and they were distributed to all the public libraries in villages who couldn't afford to buy a book, mm. and so that they were aware of the situation. So, and there was at least one uh, NGO that came up in the country that was devoted precisely to this thing, to the awareness, uh, raising of the awareness. So, a lot of these I was involved in directly after the publication of the books. So, I think governments, you know, unless it becomes a politicized priority, this issue, especially in that part of the world, is never really a priority for the government. Uh, there are so many other pressing issues. But the minute it becomes public, people to start talking, and that's the one reason why I wrote the novels actually in English, is I wanted to make some international noise, not just domestic noise. Uh, my poetry, by the way, is in Armenian, as I said. But, the, mm -hmm. but this novels, I wanted to make a lot of international noise. I had it translated into Armenian, but uh, it was quite well received internationally those first two. And the U.S. Embassy in um, Armenia uh, took it very seriously. They gave me a huge book uh, presentation uh, reception in their house, the ambassador's house. Uh, and then I was guest on, I don't know, maybe 12, 13 different talk shows on TV and radio and so on. So we spread the word. The whole point was to spread the word that this is an issue, that this is not something you should be shy about talking about because in that kind of conservative society sometimes people are reluctant to discuss this mm -hmm. they say you know this is too shameful too painful why are we exposing such a phenomenon especially internationally and you know my response is precisely what that's what the criminals want the criminals mm -hmm. want you to be afraid to be ashamed to be pained and keep quiet so that they can do their job in, in peace we're not going to give them that you know, we're not going to give the criminals the environment, that kind of silence within which they thrive. And that's the kind of thing I think I managed to make a small difference. And I'm, I'm happy for that. I am happy that you did that as well. I, I don't get on my soapbox very often on this show because I prefer to keep that to myself. But I just, I just want to say how important it is, this work that you're doing. I, I say a lot that writers have this power to change the world. And I think that you are living proof of that. So thank you for this important work that thank you're doing. Thank you. Thank you, Sarah. What was your favorite part about writing A Place Far Away and its sequel? I'll be honest with you. The, writing, the process of writing that book was not pleasant. The only thing that drove me is the expectation that at the end of once I finish it it will do some good but the story is quite painful and it's very graphic I have to warn those who would like to read it because I like one of the reviewers Kirkus Review I think said Zanoyan does not sugarcoat the gruesome world of sex traffic I haven't sugarcoated because if you sugarcoat it it makes no sense I mean it, yeah. it, it, then what's the point of trying to make a phenomenon public if you're going to sugarcoat it and water it down? 
And a lot of it, a lot of even the graphic uh, parts are directly taken from my interviews with the victims. So I haven't made that up. But this, the reason I say it was not very pleasant because I had to relive that. But, you know, there's still, even when you're writing, at least even when I'm writing something very sad, very disturbing, the process of writing, the process of creative writing is still very satisfying. And I don't know how to explain this. It's very difficult to explain. The, the, the way I describe some of those scenes, the scenes themselves, on the one hand, can kill you, the writer. But on the other hand, the process of that description and that emotion that comes out can be very satisfying. I don't know. There's no contradiction there. <laughs> yes. Unless some of you have actually been through that process, uh, you may think I'm nuts, but, but it, it does work that way. It does. I will second that. It does. You know, people talk about the tortured artist and the, but I, I think to some degree that's true. You talked a little bit earlier about living this rich, full life before you started writing. How did it feel to not write? As, as a person who now writes and finds great meaning in writing and has always loved to write, how did it feel? You said you went for 40 years without writing creatively. How did that feel? And then what really spurred you to drop your very successful career and become a writer? You know, during that phase when I was in my career, I was so absorbed in it. And there was... To be honest with you, there was a lot of room for creativity in the area I was because I was in consulting and I was advising very, very top corporations and governments. And we, as I said about the same thing I said about fact and truth when it comes to storytelling, exposing truth, I was kind of practicing that because we told different stories at the time. Our first issue that we raised, put on the table, okay, here are all the facts. We all know this. Now, what does it mean? The, what's the, so, what does it mean to you specifically? So that's where the analysis came. Mm -hmm. And that analysis that we did had a lot of creative components. Okay, it wasn't literature, but we were good at this. Me and my colleagues and partners actually were, when, when we were doing this, we were on top of the world. We were a small advisory firm, but the top organizations, the top oil and gas companies and the top oil and gas producing governments were our clients. And there were at least a dozen chairmen of very large corporations who, if they heard that one of us is on the phone, they drop everything and run into picket. That's how influential we were. Now, there's something very powerful about that also, Sarah. There, you know, it's like part of it, I have to admit, part of it is an ego trip. And believe me, in writing, there is an equal dose of ego. ego. <laughs> <laughs> this is true. This is true. You don't have a big ego. You shouldn't think about writing. <laughs> and you shouldn't think about consulting. You shouldn't think about being a teacher, by the way. Now, true. In all these cases, you do it for someone else. You're a teacher because you want to nurture your students. You, you're a consultant because you want to help your clients. Absolutely. But it's your ego that drives you. Now, the whole idea that there are people out there, a lot of them much smarter than me, by the way, and who are doing their business. I've never produced a drop of oil in my life. These guys are multi-billion dollar companies producing oil, actually, in real life. But these people are paying me for my advice, 
Think, think of the ego trip in that. Yeah? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's what, in that case, that's what takes you away, right? Yes. That's, what, that's where the high comes from. Uh, in poetry, the high comes from, from being able to say, to put on paper one perfectly placed word in the right place, at the right context, in the right time. God, that is an incredible high. But, but ultimately, they both come from the same human need to excel at something, to do something so good, so right, so perfect, that you will be remembered. The source is the same. So in those days, that's what was sustaining me in a way, that, that being so good at the work we did, the life was incredible. Travel all over the world, meet some of the most interesting people for your views on something that most probably they know more about than you do, but nonetheless, you have a different angle, you have a new way of looking at it, and that's what they're totally taken by, and in many cases, actually be very helpful to those guys, you know, who are so entrenched in their own little companies, in their own little trading operations, that they miss sometimes the bigger picture. And you give them that bigger picture, and you put them and their operations in a global context, this is an incredibly rich universe, really. And I wouldn't trade it for anything. I mean, in the, so in those days, and there was, believe it or not, there is art in being a consultant. It's not just science. In fact, it's very little science. The ability to tie very broad geolo geopolitical trends to a small business consequence or, or implication for a business is as much art as anything else. So that, that the artist in you has to come out to see that connection. And then just like Van Gogh would see a picture in his brain and go and paint it. I'm not comparing us to Van Gogh, but, but <laughs> the same thing, the same idea that you connect dots, which very few can connect, at least in that context. So what sustained me there 40 years without literature is probably all these substitutes or Second best, maybe, if you want to call it. But then eventually, um, the time came where I said, okay, enough. How much is enough? Okay, why should I work? I mean, I, I had already, or at that time, I was approaching 60, and I had done enough. I had been, been, I was already at the very peak of my career. I said, okay, enough. Now, I will travel. I will write. I will drink good wine. <laughs> I will live generally a decadent life of that sort. I mean, not totally decadent, but <laughs> good wine decadent. And by the way, that's the topic of my fourth novel that I'm working on now. It's, it's wine. So, and I haven't regretted it, and I haven't been busier ever in my life since my so-called retirement. What a wonderful, wonderful thing. And what a wonderful attitude to have about it. I'm so curious. You, you you speak about travel very passionately. What does what do you think that travel can do for a writer? Oh God, what cannot what it cannot do? <laughs> <laughs> it can do. It's everything. It's everything. I am convinced because first of all, I it's a, maybe it's a personality thing. I get very restless after a few weeks in simply. I mean, we live in beautiful Corona del Mar. It's idyllic. Everyone who's here is, feels so lucky, perfect weather, beautiful, ocean view, blah, 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 all this good stuff, right? <laughs> After three weeks, I cannot sit still. I'm restless. I have to go somewhere. And 
and my wife kind of rolls her eyes and sometimes comes with me, sometimes doesn't, but, <laughs> but doesn't matter. First of all, it's only, first your mind, your mind is on a different gear when you're traveling than when you're sedentary, you're sitting in the same place in your home. It's easier to kind of sink into a, almost, I, I hate this term now, but even though it's very accurate, comfort zone, you have more stimuli as you're traveling, including the hassles. I hate the hassles travel, okay? <laughs> Airport, security check, all this, but they're stimuli. They stimulate something in you where you don't even realize it. Then all the people, masses of people, especially large airports, but then landing in a whole new reality after several hours, 12 hours, 10 hours, whatever, you don't just travel, you reach a different world, hmm. uh, different attitudes. I mean, imagine being in some of the more remote conservative places in the Middle East, in the desert, then in Asia, in this, in the sacred sands, I have some scenes in Japan. I'm, I'm totally enamored by Japan, by the way, as a culture, as, as a people, as a history. And a lot of those scenes are actually lived. I mean, I, I, I was there. I was in the middle of those events as they were happening at the time. Mm-hmm. Japan just, I mean, it totally refreshes you. You, you go, you experience, and you almost, it's like, it's better than acting. You know how an actor has to take on the personality of the character they're acting, how they have to put their selves, themselves not only in that person's shoes but in their skin almost and live their life before they can act properly. A writer has to do the same with his characters. But also when you travel, you live that. You, you, do, you can then do that because you put yourself in the natural habitat of a different culture, of a different culinary experience, by the way, which I love to experiment with all these things, <laughs> and different lifestyles and different attitudes. And without that, imagine how poor someone is. I mean, when I first discovered that 40% of U.S. congressmen who legislate foreign policy, by the way, as part of their job, don't even have a passport, they haven't left the country. Are you serious? Yeah, I'm dead serious, yeah. <laughs> I just couldn't believe my ears. I mean, how do, how do you sit there and legislate foreign policy if you don't? Anyway, I, I don't want to go there. I don't, <laughs> yeah, but wow. I, I don't want to get into politics now. I want to get into <laughs> politics. I'm just saying there is now. But there is it. But there is one issue which I'd like to bring here because of, also it also depends on the background. When I was growing up in Lebanon, I knew this is not the center of the world, right? I mean, you know, the world is out there, not here. But if someone is growing up in any of the major cities in the United States, New York, Los Angeles, or even in the Midwest, in Oklahoma, I don't care, they have a point sometimes in thinking, this is it. This is the center of the world. Mm. This is the best country in the world. This is the biggest, richest, most powerful. So why bother with those peripheral other countries? You know. So to some extent, that comes from already being where a lot of others want to come. And therefore, you lose interest mm-hmm. about the rest of the world. I think that's to the detriment of many Americans, by the way. I, I, I wish there was as much interest in the outside world in America as there was in some, as there is in some other parts of the country, of the world, because it's enriching. I don't care how rich the environment you come from is, it's still enriching to experience 
different places and different people, different cultures. You don't have to like them, you don't have to adopt them, you don't have to write about them even, but experience them. We're here for one lifetime. You know, it's, it's good to experience things. I agree so much. And I was one of those people. I didn't have a passport until, well, I couldn't afford to travel. So when I was in my early or late 20s, uh, I got out of the country for the first time. And I agree, it's, it's life-changing and it's essential. I would love to hear all about The Sacred Sands. This is the novel that you published recently, I want to say in December 2016. Yes. This is something that I've really lived through. Okay. This the story, the setting is the 80s. 1980s, very turbulent time in global oil markets, very turbulent time in the Persian Gulf. I don't know, those of you in your audience who are old enough remember there was something called the Gulf War, there was something called when Iraq invaded Kuwait, and when the United States launched Desert Storm to go and liberate Kuwait back in the 80s. And then this was under Bush 1, by the way, mm -hmm. George Bush, Papa Bush. And then um, under Bush 2, we had a couple of other wars which weren't as good in any sense of the world, and they were entirely unnecessary. But they were driven by different political agendas in the United States. Now, at that time, during both of these periods, and there was, at the same time, let me say, there was incredible amount of acrimony within the organization called OPEC, Organization of Petroleum Exporting Countries. Um, many Americans still may remember the oil embargo after 1973-74, when oil prices quadrupled. The young ones will not remember this stuff, but the old ones will remember. Then OPEC was born, and then as a response to that action of OPEC, United States founded for the first time the, the Department of Energy. We didn't have a Department of Energy before then. Anyway, long story short, basically in that 80s was the main turbulent period where there was an incredible amount of acrimony within OPEC, incredible games being played in the global crude oil market, incredible gains being paid among traders, both both in the New York Mercantile Exchange in New York, but also in the global physical uh, oil market, and oil producers undermining each other, creating lowering prices. Imagine a group of the largest oil exporters colluding in order to bring the price of oil down for all kinds of hidden agendas and political agendas, mm -hmm. which eventually led to Iraq's invasion of Kuwait and then the decision for uh, George Bush to repel that invasion and liberate Kuwait. Now, I was, as I say, I was in the belly of the beast. I was advising the Kuwaiti government, Saudi government, U.S. government, all branches of U.S. government at the time, plus, of course, all the oil traders and the oil companies. I was running crazy between the Gulf, Europe, Japan, and then Japan plays a role in the 80s. Japan was very important in the 80s. Then this was before the rise of China. Okay, Now the main force in, in Asia is the Chinese economy and the China, Chinese government. But in those days, back in the 80s, Japan was an extremely prosperous, thriving country. And their quest for crude oil, access to crude oil and oil reserves was incredible. So people were fighting over access to crude oil reserves, reserves in the ground. And a lot of those reserves were owned by governments. So this story, as I say, I taken a lot of those real life situations and my own experiences in there and fictionalized it. Fictionalized it by 
again, my favorite trick in fictionalizing is combining two or three real live characters into one where every component is real, but the totality that I create as a consequence is fiction. Some of the events that happened are the exact same events, but even though I call the whole book fiction, the story is that you view the world as if this very successful young energy consultant living in Washington, his name is James Blackburn, takes you by the hand and takes you with him as he goes, meets all his clients and discovers things, uncovers all kinds of little uh, agendas that newspapers aren't writing about. Mm. Things happen behind the scenes in OPEC meetings that nobody knows about. And then the, the way the market reacts to all this, how the oil prices crash and then rise and then crash again, all these things he's seeing by piercing the veil and he's taking you with him. Uh, if you read the book, that's what you'll feel. That's what The Sacred Sands is about. And then what I did recently, you know, I, I don't follow the oil markets and so on professionally anymore as I used to, obviously, but it's still it's something I've done 35, 40 years. I can totally ignore it. So once in a while, I check what's happening in the world. What's fascinating to me is that everything that's happening today in global oil markets, in the Middle East, the rise of ISIS, this most recent uh, phenomenon of the last several years, the destruction of Iraq, the destruction of Syria, the proxy wars that we as the United States are fighting against with Russia or against Russia or against Saudi Arabia in various parts of the world, all these developments had their roots in those same events back in the 1980s. And so I added an epilogue at the very end of the book, which happens in 2016, where this consultant sits back fires up a cigar and is looking at today's news and saying, you know, I mean, these are identical. The process is the same of OPEC and oil market process is the same as before. And just imagine if, only if we could have succeeded in doing a different policy back then, because there were alternatives back then. There are, in the, in the book, there's a story about how there is a movement that's trying to fight Islamic fundamentalism in the Middle East, replace it with civil society and so on. We, United States never supported it. So the consultant looks back and says, just think, what if we had managed to support this group? What if they had, their vision of the Middle East had emerged rather than the fundamentalist vision that they were fighting? What a different world this would have been, right? So there is, there is a lot in there. I cannot summarize in just a short thing, but there's a lot both in terms of history, in terms of cultures. I mean, there's a chapter on called The Wealthy Slaves, which tells you a lot about the desert culture in, in their world. There is a lot also about lessons possibly, hopefully, to be learned if people even bother reading it and taking <laughs> it. I, you know, when you reach your third novel, you kind of give up on a lot of readership and, um, you know, the, the idea that this, this can really influence things unless you go after it and try to promote, like I did with the first book, away because I wanted that, that's a different story because I wanted that word out. But in this case, there are probably equally important lessons uh, for policymakers, but I'm not sure how, how it's going to work that part. Similar to the other books, what was your favorite part about writing The Sacred Sands? Oh, The Sacred Sands was a lot of fun. First of all, Good. let me tell you what happened. I started this book 27 years ago. I started this book in April 1989. 
I had written about 180 pages by July 12, 1989. On July 12, a life-changing event happened in our house. My first son was born, and this book <coughs> was put aside. Yes. <laughs> Till I did that executive decision I told you about and retired and started writing, and then I was writing poetry, and then this a chance meeting with the victim happened, so two other novels had to have precedence to this. Only after those two novels are out of my system about the sex trafficking, I picked up the pieces of this again, and I completed it. So it's been, I cannot say it's been in the, in the works for 27 years, but it's been in the works for three months, four months, 27 years ago, and then another three months <laughs> last year. So total maybe six, seven months, but writing it, finishing it was an incredible nostalgic thing. I had to go back on memory lane. I had to remember so many things I had forgotten. I had to speak to a lot of my colleagues who are still in the, in the business, who didn't retire like me, but they were working with me in those days. Um, I had to call some of my friends in Japan and the Middle East and so on. But, but just having to relive those days was incredibly satisfying. You know, it's just aside from the writing of it, the experience was fantastic. You've written three novels. You've written two books of poetry. What's next for you? Right now, I'm working on a fourth novel, which is, as I said, about wine. I yes. love it. Yes. <laughs> no. And that takes us back. And that setting is both the, the, the scenes there will include a lot of Northern California, but also Armenia. Why Armenia? The oldest known winery on planet Earth is in Armenia in a little place called RNE1 complex of caves. The first well, winemaking in that part of the world goes about six to 8,000 years history. This cave is a 6,100 year old cave. They have uncovered winemaking paraphernalia, you know, those clay urns and everything almost untouched 6,000 years. At that time, <clears throat> wine was almost a religion. People believed back six to 8,000 years ago that the juice of grapes, because it's from the sun, is, captures the sun, is actually the blood of God. And when they drank wine, they're drinking the blood of God. And imagine you know, you, they get a little buzz in their head. They feel. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think it's a great story. The, the point is this, that that's a region which is the cradle of wine. That's where wine started. Georgia, Armenia, in that part of the world. And as I said, the oldest discovered known winery on planet Earth happens right there. In fact, I have a small house uh, 30 minutes from this famous 6,100-year-old cave. But then, for a long time, Wine production and wine business in that part of the world had kind of fallen asleep, this, uh, kind of gone silent. And during the Soviet times, by the way, Armenia, as you know, was a, was a country in the Soviet Union for some 71 years. Wine was not even encouraged. Armenia was said, okay, you guys produce brandy, Georgia will produce wine, and the wine business was, didn't happen. I mean, you couldn't find much locally made wine worth drinking back then when I first went back in 89. Now, today though, in the last 15 years, there's been such a resurrection, such a rebirth of the wine business in, in Armenia that it's mind-boggling. 
and they won all kinds of international awards and so on. So there's a big surge of new wineries uh, producing, using a lot of indigenous grape varieties and using foreign grape varieties. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a booming little new industry. So I'm writing a novel about that story, how the rebirth is happening and what are some of the hurdles and one of the solid problems. <clears throat> and I love it because I have to do so much research, which entails drinking a lot. <laughs> <laughs> now, I keep telling everyone this is work. I'm working now. Don't, don't bother me. And, um, it's a fascinating thing. You know, it's, it's just the research not just for this, for everything you do. You know, it's, 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 what is research? Research is learning something new. What can be so bad about that? You know, learning something. Even when you learn a bad thing, but you didn't know it before, it's still you learn something new. Not everything you learn has to be good for it to be important for your own person, for your own development as a human being. In fact, a lot of things we, we learn every day aren't necessarily good. Uh, all, I mean, sometimes I read the news, I feel, you know, someone has to be a masochist to enjoy reading the news. Uh, but, you know, it, it is, it is the reality. Anyway, I'm, again, digressing a little bit, but, <laughs> but it's fun. It's fun to learn. It's fun to research. It's fun to uncover. And then especially once you absorb all this and you internalize it to put it back out on paper through your own mind and soul, which is the whole process of creative writing, there's nothing like it. Beautifully said. In your journey to becoming a writer, was there another writer in particular whose work you enjoyed, who influenced you, who mentored you, anything like that? Oh boy, I've read, I've read a lot. <laughs> I, say, I mean, I've read some of the old classics, which, which I like a lot, like Tolstoy, Dostoevsky, Victor Hugo, those, those caliber people. Uh, and, and a lot more recent, uh, Faulkner, Clavel. I mean, I, I, I love to read. And, and, and a lot, by the way, I, a lot of writers from the Armenian literature, which influenced my poetry a lot. But I cannot say that there is a single influence. Uh, all of them influence you or any writer in all kinds of ways. I mean, John Le Carré has influenced me in the way he, he spins a story, in the way... He describes, you know, he brings out the essence of a human nature in, in a short, very short, one phrase sometimes. All of a sudden, the character just pops out of the page in front of you by one sentence. He's the master of that. But I cannot say, uh, another style that I love is, is Barbara Kingsolver. I don't know if you've read any of her mm -hmm. books. Some of her stories are just, I mean, I, I, there's no way to do a complete list. But I cannot, honestly, I cannot put my finger on a single influence or more, two or three. Reading is a critical part of learning. You don't always necessarily have to travel and, and see things for yourself uh, to learn. I mean, it's, reading is a fantastic eye-opener. But also, you, no matter, subconsciously probably, you get influenced by style, by approach, uh, Hemingway. Uh, how can how can some a writer read Hemingway and not be influenced by? It? <laughs> it's, it's actually if you read him and are not influenced, you're probably totally brain dead. I mean, how can you? <laughs> yeah, such powerful styles that inadvertently, subconsciously, it get 
by osmosis, it gets into you, and then eventually, somewhere, it comes back out. So there's influences. I agree that if you asked me what my influence was, I wouldn't be able to name one either. So perhaps it was an unfair question in the first place. But I, I love that you said that it's just this this collective... There's there's a quote, and it's um, something to the effect of, you know, we are the sum of all of the books we have read. We are some of all of the readers and the writers that, you know, that we have sort of, I don't know if I want to say ingested, because that kind of ruins the whole effect. But, <laughs> <laughs> but yes, I, I, I love that. I love that sentiment. And it is, it's been perfectly true in my life as well. Wonderful. Bahan, thank you so much for being on the show. I feel like I could talk to you for another six hours and we still wouldn't well, uh, touch everything that, that I would love to talk to you about. But thank, thank you. So you. Thank you so much for your wisdom and for the, the work that you're doing in social justice. Thank you for um, this wonderful positive message you have about how writing can change the world. Thank you, Sarah. This was fantastic. I had a lot of fun talking with you. Oh, me too. I